0: Hello, Theology and the listeners. You are about to hear a fascinating conversation that I had with my friend, Sam Alberry. Sam Alberry, as you will find out, is a, a pastor, a speaker, a writer, and a Christian who is same-sex attracted. And so he's been a very helpful and encouraging and courageous voice in the conversation about faith, sexuality, and gender. You're gonna love this, this conversation. I, I, was, I learned a ton and most of all, I just learned how much of an amazing heart for Christ and the gospel that Sam has. I'm very excited for you to listen to the show. Uh, September 25th, I will be in Los Angeles for a one-day Leaders Forum that is sponsored by Eternity Bible College. is putting on the forum. It's, it's going to be at Rocky Peak Church there in the San Fernando Valley. If you want to attend this event, you got to go to centerforfaith.com and go to the events link and sign up for the One Day Forum. It is, I think there's going to be a lot of people there. I've seen a lot of sign-ups that are happening right now. Usually people don't sign up till the last couple of weeks. For this one, don't be that person because you might not get in. So if you want to attend the One Day Leaders Forum, go to centerforfaith.com and register for that event. And many thanks to my former institution, Eternity Bible College, for uh, putting a ton of work into hosting this event. And so uh, if you don't know, Eternity Bible College is committed to debt-free education. That's right. You can get an amazing Christian theological biblical education and walk with no debt because they slam the prices down as low as they can possibly go with and and still pay their faculty and staff. Um, But it's it's an incredibly good, solid, in-depth, thoughtful Biblical education, it's not indoctrinating. They teach you not what to think, but how to think biblically. And so I can't speak more highly of Eternity Bible College. If you're still wanting to attend a class or two in the fall, um, you, it might not, well, it might be too late for the fall, but check them out for the spring. They have a full online program. So no matter where you're living, you can take classes from Antarctica if you wanted to, as long as you have an internet connection. That's eternitybiblecollege.com. I will also be at San, uh, in San Diego on September 27th for a One Day Leaders Forum. Check it out if you want to spend the day talking about faith, sexuality, and gender, uh, some of the most pressing ethical questions facing the church today. I don't know of any Christian who shouldn't be thinking about questions surrounding faith, sexuality, and gender. So this is a good way to get acquainted with the conversation, learn what the, the theological debates are all about, learn how you can be a better uh Better neighbor to your LGBTQ friends at work or in your neighborhood, Uh, how you can shepherd people who are same sex attracted in your church, and so on and so forth. That's centerforfaith.com. Go to the events link and you can check it out. If you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. I promise this is the last announcement. I know you're probably itching to listen to Sam, as am I. Sam, I am, as am I. Anyway, if you want to support the show, patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. Support the show for as little as five bucks a month. If the show has blessed you, encouraged you, challenged you, or even made you mad and you just want to throw money at it, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. Support the show for as little as five bucks a month and get premium content in return. Okay, folks, enough of me jibber jabbering. Here is the one and only Sam Albert. Friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I am so excited to talk with my friend Sam Alberry. Uh, Sam is an author, a speaker, a pastor. He currently serves um, with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, where he's been, where he's speaking full time. Um, he's also an editor for the Gospel Coalition and an author of several books. Uh, the one I, maybe you're most known for is. The the short, really good book uh, is God anti gay. But I first heard your name from a student of mine who read your book on the Trinity, connected living in light of the Trinity. And I remember this is before, um, I mean, it came out in 2013, and I didn't I didn't know who you were. He just says, "Man, I just read this recent book on the Trinity. It's so good." I'm like, oh, Sam Alberry, and then, and then you came out with Is God Anti-Gay? And that, that was just an incredible book. And since then, you've written a, a bunch of books. But anyway, thank you, Sam Alberry, for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to, great to be with you, Preston. So uh, why don't we go back and just tell us a little bit about who you are. And I, I'm going to assume probably the majority of my audience will, will know who you are and probably read some of your books. Um, but you're obviously not from America. <laughs> uh, you grew up in the UK and uh, were you raised in a Christian home? And, and how did you feel the call to pastoral ministry? When did you want to really engage uh, Christianity on maybe the level that you're at right now?
1: No, thank you. Um, I we I didn't grow up going to church or anything. We we didn't sort of have any practicing Christianity from that point of view. Um, so I didn't really start engaging the Christian faith for myself until I was seventeen. I had a couple of Christian friends who were really good friends. They invited me to their church's youth ministry. I ran out of reasons not to go and went along. Heard the gospel realized immediately that the message of Jesus was different to what I had assumed it was. And that Jesus himself was not the anemic kind of, I sort of imagined him being a cross between Gandhi and one of the BGS kind of says <laughs> ethical sounding things. I imagine he had long hair and all the rest of it. And I realized the real Jesus is much more interesting, much more compelling and much more uncomfortable than the Jesus I had imagined just the things he says they just deeply unsettle you and mm. you get a sense that he he's not speaking from within the same mm. world and framework that that the rest of us are mm. so I immediately realized that this there was there was far more to him than I had previously thought, and it wasn't long before i I realized that he came came for people like me to to bring us back to God and I remember very, very consciously, one sun, sunny afternoon, August 1993, realizing Jesus died for me, not just for sinners, for me.
2: Hmm.
1: And I realized this was someone I, that, that that had to be everything or nothing. And I realized that if, if he has done that for me, then I can trust him with my life. Hmm. And I remember thinking, I want to follow this man. I have no idea what that will look like, where that will take me or what that will involve. I just knew that I can trust him wherever it is. It will be right. So I had that overwhelming conviction right from now on. I'm following Jesus.
0: So, so that was actually, late teenage years, you're saying? Or?
1: Yeah, so I, I was just turning 18. OK, and OK. And interestingly, six months after that, I was being interviewed in church by my pastor just to kind of explain have become a christian and he came up to me afterwards and said you're going to be a preacher
2: hmm.
1: um i had that thought had just not remotely occurred to me before then i i actually grew up with quite a fear of public speaking but i just knew from the moment my pastor said that 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 was going to be the case and from that from that time onwards my my biggest burden in ministry has been to, to help believers grow in their understanding of the richness of what we have in Christ. Mm. And so that then led into pastoral ministry. I've been involved in local church work in an Anglican context back in the UK for the last 15 years. And, and to be honest, the stuff I'm doing now is I, I still think of that as a function of being a pastor. Mm. Um, that's all I'm trying to do and just doing it in a slightly different context.
0: So you were a, you were a lead pastor, a full-time pastor, a priest, or what was your title for a number uh, of years? I was
1: uh, on a team. So there were four of okay. us who were full-time clergy at this particular church. Um, I wasn't the lead pastor. I was one of the associates. But we okay. had – I looked after one of the congregations.
0: Okay, okay.
1: So it was – um which is kind of – I think it was the best of both worlds because you get the – you get to have a whole congregation to, to pastor and sure. to, to look after, but you've also got the safety net of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. of someone above you that, you know, when the baby starts screaming, you can hand it over to someone. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, we, we didn't use a language of, we don't use a language of, of priests in my, in my church, but I was one of the pastors there.
0: Was it kind of a low church Anglican church? Yeah. If that, yeah,
1: yeah. Okay. Uh, liturgical without being ritualistic. Okay, but pretty informal and low church in our style of how we lead the services and that kind of thing.
0: Okay, okay. How did you get involved with uh, Ravi Zacharias Ministries as as a speaker? Was you've been doing that for a while, or I've been with them for just about two and a half years now. Oh, that's and it. Okay,
1: just through a, a, just a wonderful the way God has sort of just operated things. I was working full time for a church. After i when I wrote the the book is god anti gay i I naively thought maybe every now literally I thought maybe every now and then a church will need me to come and do some teaching on this, so okay. I'll probably every few months do something I hadn't realized people would actually read the book and that it would it would have the impact that it it seems to have had, and I hadn't realized a how comfortable I would be speaking about this issue Hmm. and be what needs and opportunities there were. I mean it it just such a desperate need, and there still is, for for biblical, compassionate, Mm -hmm. gospel-centered teaching on this issue. Yeah. Everywhere.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So
1: I began to realise that the depth of the need the uniqueness of the opportunity I seem to have as someone with both a personal narrative, with experience of pastoral ministry. um, And I couldn't do that and full-time local church work at the same time. It was beyond my emotional capacity. I I just spent all my time feeling guilty because if I was away from my church doing wider ministry, there was ministry at church that wasn't being done. If I was saying no to other opportunities outside the church, I was thinking, but who else really is there doing this stuff?
2: Yeah.
1: Not many of us who were who able to, to teach on this in that kind of way. So um, a friend from Rabbi Zacharias' ministry basically said, we would love to, to have you be part of the team. Um, they were aware that this is, from an apologetics point of view, an unavoidable issue. Mm-hmm. and that we need people who are equipped to speak on this as we do on all the other issues that, that come up these days. So they've been a wonderful, wonderful home, and they've they've allowed me to to have a, a slightly more diverse ministry so that I'm not just speaking on this one topic all the time, but they're happy for me to write and think and speak on other things and to be doing more general preaching and Bible teaching as well. So I, I, I thank God. For, yeah for that ministry and it's, if somebody
0: if somebody contacts Ravi Zacharias ministries and say all right we need we're having an LGBT discussion we need you know we need you to send somebody our way are you the kind of are you the one that they go to yeah, first Yeah there are others
1: within the ministry who, who speak on this really well okay. as well but um, I'm I'm often someone who who gets wheeled out for these things yeah
0: Yeah okay well, oh yeah I had I had David Bennett on uh, a few months ago so and he's yeah. He's probably another
1: (laughs) others in the team too. uh, Even if it's not been part of their personal narrative, just speak to the issue. Yeah, yeah. So,
0: in case people don't know, I mean, you you are a same sex attracted Christian. Um, I'm curious when you're giving your testimony, uh, were you um, where were you at with your sexuality when you got saved and did that. Was was that a, another hurdle you had to kind of jump over or think through? Like, what does it mean to be same sex attracted, and now I'm following Jesus? How's this going to work, or what was that like?
1: So in the 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 way it works with the Lord's timing is that it was I was seventeen when I first realized, I, I remember very vividly standing at a bus stop and saying to myself, "I think I'm gay." Mm. And I remember that the moment those words entered my mind. I thought, well obviously I might have romantic sexual feelings for other guys that don't have those feelings for, for girls at all. And it took me a long time to realize that. So I'd already kind of come to terms with that and acknowledge that. And I was at that point beginning to think maybe when I go to university, I can explore this when I, you know, mm-hmm. in those days, universities had LGB societies. And I remember thinking maybe I'll just join one of those groups and explore this and see mm-hmm. where it goes. And Then I became a Christian before I went to university. Hmm. So before I really had any opportunity to act on this or properly explore it, um, I came to faith. And I'm so grateful for the Lord's timing on that because it means I didn't get into a whole bunch of stuff that I would Hmm. then be grieving Hmm. as a Christian. But it did mean that when I did did come to Christ, one of the most pressing issues for me was then, well, what does he think about this? And I had no idea. So, but I, again, I already knew whatever he said I could trust. So I was, I was completely convinced that Jesus was Lord, that I could trust him. And therefore I knew whatever he did say, I was going to be fine with. Wow. So I never, from that point of view, I never wrestled with, his teaching on on sex and marriage and and the teaching of, of wider scripture as well, okay. because I already knew the person who was teaching it.
0: Did you ever explore affirming Christian arguments? I mean, in this day and age, I mean, this is I guess a while back for you, so it wasn't well, as many books or whatever. But
1: there weren't that many at the time. <laughs> Not from within the broadly evangelical fold, there was right. Uh, I. I didn't really start to look into that until I until a few years later actually. I think it was when I began to realize I was feeling called cool to to write and start to speak on this issue. That's when I thought I really need to okay. look at all the arguments as as well as I can and yeah. read far more widely
0: on the issue. Yeah. Were you at all convinced or almost convinced or like, Ooh, wow, this is, this is really tough. Or what was that Um, journey like as you wrestled with all the arguments?
1: Honest, I I was never
0: close to being exegetically convinced,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: but I do see the emotional power of the argument. Yeah. Yeah. Because often the way it's framed is beginning with a starting point of, of some of the deep pain, Mm-hmm. LGBT friends have been through and um, it often gets you to the point where you're, you're then emotionally desperate for the Bible to say something that will be mm-hmm. affirming
2: mm-hmm. but
1: I've just yeah. never found the exegesis I've got to say even remotely compelling I yeah. mean we, people can argue all over the place about what kind of gay people did Paul know and yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff you can go around in circles on that but to me, the issue has always been. It's always been a, what the Bible teaches on this issue. Has always for me been a, an outworking of what it teaches on marriage. Right. And it seems yeah. to me that you cannot begin to argue against the kind of gender complementarity being the foundation for biblical marriage. That the yeah. mingling of male and female is such a special and sacred union. Mm-hmm. Um, so that. For me that's always made the issue very, very clear. And therefore, that being the case, all deviations from that creation pattern are right. possible.
0: What you said is so basic and simple, and yet it's fascinating how few people think through this question from that from that question, the question of what is marriage. I I mean it's 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 bewildering how many affirming books I've read that never once, never once even raise the question, let alone answer the question, what is marriage? They assume that marriage is a union between two consensual adults and that sex difference has nothing to do with what marriage is, even though, even though for two millennia and all of our scripture and all of our, every monotheistic religion, (laughs) like, like the basic idea that, that marriage is the coming together of two sexually different people. Um, that that question's never even raised, or at least it's never even like addressed in in a book that will write a whole book saying why the Bible affirms same sex marriage, and it, and they never once raise a question: what is marriage? It's fat. It's fascinating to me. Do you know anybody? The, the closest I've come is um, Robert Song, in his book. I've not um, read
1: that, but I've I've heard that he goes into some well.
0: Detail. He says marriage marriage is between two sexually different people because marriage is for procreation. But then he argued, so he gets it right, but then he argues that consensual same sex unions are within the purview of scripture. So he doesn't argue for same sex marriage because he says marriage by definition isn't same, sex. <laughs> but he argues yeah. for affirming consensual relationships, which he, he never raises a question or answers. Okay. But now you've just argued for a sexual relationship outside of marriage. How do you do that? You know, um, but yeah, at least. But he's the only one I know. Maybe James Brownson, kind of did. But even he, looking back, he he didn't really make a great case that sex difference is irrelevant for marriage. He just kind of played on the one flesh thing. But have you have you read any affirming books that actually drill down deep into what is marriage and offer you a good defense for their view that it, sex difference doesn't have anything to do with marriage? I, I haven't, honestly. No,
1: it's I mean, fascinating more than I have on this. But I. I... I honestly haven't. And I always find in, in the sort of more popular books, arguing for an affirming position that that's the aspect they always kind of skip over. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whereas for me, that's, that's the,
0: the foundational. Yeah. You did great in your book. I mean, short and sweet your book's so short, but there's so, (laughs) there's so much in it. I don't know how you were able to say so much so concisely. I mean, that, did it start as like a really long book, and you just kept whittling it down? How did you get eighty so, pages?
1: Given a, <laughs> given a very particular format by the publisher because it's part of a series of books looking at different issues. Okay. And the structure is they're all FAQs, and had to be under fifteen thousand words. I think it was, or around fifteen. Is that seven, what it? Okay. Yeah. Like I think I wrote a. I think I basically wrote a forty thousand word book, and then had to keep reducing it and reducing it and
0: okay. reducing it. That's painful. <laughs>
1: Oh, it, is. It. You, then it does then. Yeah. You, you, you then learn not to waste words and <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, well that, I mean that, cause there is no book out there that I'm aware of that is so concise, 15,000 words and yet covers most of the major kind of exegetical and theological questions. Very, I mean, obviously you can't go into in depth, you know, uh, giving all the evidence and research for why you believe, you know, so you have to, just the nature of the book doesn't allow for that, but. Yeah, I no, hope
1: it will be the the bottom rung of a, you know, the ladder, and people will then read the more yeah. detailed books and arguments on it. But it, it it will it's it's deliberately a book that isn't meant to threaten anyone.
0: Yeah, no, no. Shifting gears just a little bit, you've been um, I think fairly vocal or in the public uh, speaking in the public sphere in, in the UK. Um. I remember watching a, a video of you in, in some sort of almost like a, maybe it was an Anglican forum or something where you. Was a, a, yeah. The church of England general synod, which
1: is the, the kind of right. governing body of the, the church of England.
0: That's pretty scary. I saw you up there. I was like, dang man, that, that, wow. That yeah, takes a lot of courage. And I imagine you probably got a lot of pushback or, or whatever. I mean, how, how, what's been your experience? Like as you've been very public with your views in the church of England.
1: Yeah. It's been, I'm, I'm I've been an ordained Anglican for 15 years, or thereabouts, and I've been on the General Synod for the last two to three years.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: Just as an elected member of the House of Clergy. Um, the Synod is a, is a microcosm of the whole Church of England, so you've got every viewpoint really? under yeah. the sun within the Synod itself. So when we had that particular debate, um, the way these debates work is you, you don't know if you're going to be called upon. And you don't know until you're in the room how long each speaker is going to get. Really? Well, I figured it won't be more than four minutes just because this is too big an issue. Everyone's going to want to say something. And it probably won't be less than two. So I thought I'll prepare something that's about three minutes and I can, I'll have a slightly longer version in my head and a slightly shorter version in my head and just see what happens. Mm. Um and I think we were given three minutes in the end, or, or something like that. So it was it turned out to be fine. Um, but it, the, the thing with that was, I had—I knew that the debates were were live streamed for for whatever sad people like looking at Anglican synod <laughs> debates. Um, obviously, with a debate on that issue, there's going to be a bit more attention. But it, it never occurred to me that someone would actually post my speech online. Hmm. And it was hard enough trying to work out what to say to the people in the room, let alone. Anyone else who might have been Mm
2: -hmm.
1: then been watching it, so I had to choose every single sentence very, very carefully based on some of the discussions we had already had during that synod. So um, when it sort of took on a life of its own, I was Mm -hmm. actually mildly horrified to start with because I think, oh no, these those comments were not prepared for the the wider Christian scene; they were prepared for this group at this point in a particular discussion. But that it seemed to encourage others was encouraging to me. Um, I've done a bit of public stuff in the UK, not a huge amount. Um, I, around that time, I did a couple of interviews with the BBC. Um, and you get the sort of pushback you'd imagine. There's both right. both reasonable and unreasonable. Um, so... Right. I, you can't say anything on this issue from any perspective without someone being extremely cross with you. (laughs)
0: How how is the church of England on this question? Is it super volatile? Is it divided or is it just kind of like, yeah, this is the the way the Anglican church is and always will be on this question. Or I mean, is it coming to a head on on some level or I think it is, it's hugely divided. Okay. Um,
1: That in itself is not unusual for the church of England, but on this issue, because this is for for so many of us, uh, it is a gospel issue. Mm-hmm. It's not a just well, let's just agree to differ issue. Right. And therefore, I think it has been an issue of dismay for some of the some of the more liberal or middle of the road Anglicans who had just assumed that the evangelicals will agree to differ and we can come up with a compromise and we'll all somehow journey forwards together. I think they're realizing that we can't reconcile this. Okay. With other issues, there's been sort of ways of doing that with women bishops, there's accommodations made, there's two official, there's two integrities, there's mutual flourishing. But with this issue, so many of us who are evangelical in the Church of England believe to the core of our being that actually we can't journey together on this. It wouldn't be appropriate to. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so that the Church of England has had an impasse. I think that the leadership is now recognising we can't reconcile this.
0: Which side is going to win out? I, I don't love framing it that way, but... No, is that... I, I have no idea, to be honest. I don't know which way it will go. Really? Is it 50-50 split, roughly? I mean, it's not like 70-30 uh, or... might
1: be something like that on the Synod. Certainly, there are very strong views on both sides. Sure. There aren't many people now who are on the fence. I think most people have at okay. some point, had to get off the fence one side or the other. Um, I honestly don't know. And I, I, there there are times when I'm optimistic for the Church of England. I think, you know what, I think this is going to be okay. I think we're going to pull through this and and remain confessionally faithful. And other times I'm thinking, no, 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 this this whole denomination is about to drive off a (laughs) cliff. And I'm not a prophet, so I've got no idea. But I do know the gospel will win. Yeah. Uh, Whether it will win through the Church of England or in spite of it, I don't know. And I would love for the Church of England to continue to be a vehicle for the gospel because it, it has such a a wonderful heritage of mm-hmm. being that.
0: Um, in my in my experience in speaking in the UK, I was there a couple of years ago, spoke at eighteen different churches on this topic, and so it got a decent fee, I mean a small feel for kind of the, the pulse of everything. It, Am I, am I right to assume that most of the growing, vibrant, thriving churches would be on the traditional side on this question? Like I spoke at Soul Survivor. It's one of the bigger churches, I think. And uh, it's kind of Anglican, <laughs> very low church. Um, but man, it's a thriving church. And they would be a traditional on this question and, and spoke at like Andrew Wilson's church oh, yeah, yeah. And, and and just the whole New Frontiers, New Frontiers? Yep, that whole movement is really doing great things and or even up in Scotland like again the the churches that actually have people showing up on Sunday i mean that's you know, th- that are growing and discipling and reaching out they are traditional on this question um, would that, that would that be a good or hope. are there some huge booming thriving churches that are fully affirming i'm sure there are some but it seems like the majority would still be traditional yeah
1: i think i think what you said is generally true um, and and this is this is good for your american listenership to hear is i think often <laughs> americans assume the church in england has all but been extinguished
2: right.
1: yeah we're either a completely secular state or a muslim state <laughs> or something. the, the fact is the, the evangelical church is stronger than i've ever known it to be oh yeah it's flourishing it's culturally much broader than it used to be there's there's gospel penetration into parts of society and the country and communities that there hasn't been historically.
2: Mm.
1: So I think that all the, all the needles are in the right direction. And what I've noticed on this issue in the UK and, and speaking on this issue, one of the great privileges is is that you speak in a wide range of denominational churches as you you would have just experienced. Um, But I see across the broad evangelical spectrum churches standing together on this issue. Yeah. But actually the the so-called evangelical progressives really are nowhere near the mainstream. Yeah. Within evangelicalism.
0: Yeah. I feel and, like the same is in America the churches that go affirming, they get a lot of press, but in almost every case when a standard Bible-believing evangelical church changes its view, Man, it, it, it shrinks in size like crazy, like huge multi-campus megachurches have gone down to like a fraction of their attendance. Um, and I think so- there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, um, this is m- my
1: best guess work. I'm not pretending this is, this is solid. <laughs> yeah. um, I th- to me, it's one of the ways, one of the evidences of this being a gospel issue he said, I've not seen a church or a ministry or a leader who has gone affirming on this issue and retained orthodox evangelical positions oh. on the rest of theology. Hmm. Um, they may be out there and I've missed them. But it seems to me that by the time you become theologically affirming of, of gay relationships, you it's very hard to do that and to retain... Hmm. The clear authority of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, even the views of the atonements—everything else seems to just unravel a bit. And it, hmm. I remember Tim Keller once saying that, that Christian theology is like an ecosystem. You you mess around with one part, and it, it affects everything. Yeah, I, I've seen that with affirming churches that they they don't just change on this issue, but remain thoroughly evangelical and everything else.
2: Yeah,
1: everything else unravels. Yeah. And I think the other, the other thought I've got in my head is that there was a Nick Hornby novel, How to Be Good, 10 or 15 years ago. Okay. The main character was a, a medical doctor who who had just divorced her husband. And that gave her an existential crisis because she always thought, I'm a doctor, therefore I'm good. And yet I've now walked out on my husband. So, And in, in one part of the book, she goes to her local Church of England church thinking, maybe I can get some spiritual otherness and direction and challenge and, and stretching. And yet she finds that the, the minister there, the, the vicar, just says basically what culture says. Hmm. And the character says to him, listen, if I wanted to hear what's already inside my own head, I would have stayed at home.
0: <laughs> yeah, That's
1: my memory. I may have misquoted that, but that's the gist of it. And I, I just find that very telling, that actually you take the saltiness out of the salt yeah. and you don't need it anymore.
0: You know, what's funny is um, I've talked to several friends who are pastoring churches and urban centers, liberal centers, uh, very non-Christian unchurched areas of big cities. And, you know, most of those centers have a large LGBTQ population. And it, it's fascinating that in 2018, you still have very clearly traditional churches that are very vibrant, very missional and they still have a lot of LGBT people showing up more and more, even when there's lots of affirming churches around. And so yeah. I've, I had uh, I've got a gay friend who used to be a Christian, left the church eight years ago. And every now and then he'll, he'll go, he'll visit a church. He kind of misses it. You know, he just doesn't believe in Jesus at all, but he's like, yeah, sometimes I kind of, I want to go to church. I, I, I'm in need of kind of some, you know, a, a spiritual kick in the pants, whatever. And I, I, and I said, Oh, so do you go to like an affirming church? He's like, well, no, like I'm like, why not? He's like, because if I actually go to church, I don't want to be told that I'm fine. I'm going to church because I know I'm not fine. (laughs) Like I want to, I want to hear the Bible. I want to hear the gospel. I want to hear repentance. Like, and I've heard that from several people who aren't even like, who are gay and not even Christian or, or, um, or on the fence or something. And, and it, and it's, that's fascinating that. From my non-Christian gay friend, he even kind of chuckled and says, you want to reach gay people, you know, preach the word, (laughs) (laughs) he's like that that's people what if they're there they want to hear they want to hear well i i know i'm broken how do i get fixed not not like fix my sexuality but i don't want to just be patted on the back i get that from everywhere else and i know i'm not okay Hmm. (laughs) fascinating that's that's really interesting the, the limited experience i've
1: had with some secular lgbt campus groups is there's a massive openness for, for spiritual truth. Mm. yeah. Huge openness.
0: Yeah. And, uh, as, I as, you've, as you've talked about this in, in, in the UK and in America, what are some similarities and differences? Because I imagine when you give a talk, you probably have a Q&A time or you yeah. probably are interacting publicly with people a lot. Are there differences with the, commu- the types of people you interact with in America versus the UK on this question? It's very similar. Okay. So the kinds
1: of questions that come up tend to be very similar especially amongst under 25s, under 30s, university students, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um I think there's a little more I think huge generalization. I think the English are always a little bit more moderate <laughs> yeah. than the Americans. Oh um, totally, yeah. Both in terms of what They believe, but also how they express it. So, I've it, it, it's often a little more feisty in the US, yeah. Not that feistiness is absent in the UK, no, but um, yeah, yeah. I, but, I would the, completely you know, agree
0: with that. Yeah. In my experience, yeah,
1: <laughs> I think England's too small a country that we 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 kind of I'm sure that affects the national psyche that it's it's crowded, and therefore, if you don't have moderation, you, you're going to end up you right. just can't otherwise in a confined island. So, and, um, and you
0: have a state church, like we just have tons of denominations. So it, it reinforces kind of tribalism and you can kind of attack that person aggressively because they're not of your tribe. Whereas I, I imagine the fact that there is a church of England, not that it belongs to well, it, but that just culturally has got to add a different dynamic.
1: We, we have the same, we have the same dynamic. It's just, we have the, <laughs> the tribes within the denomination between the denominations so I think think. in the mainline Protestant denominations there have been evangelical tribes non-evangelical tribes and I think we what we're seeing is a a realignment where actually our evangelicalness matters more to us than our denominational background and uh, affiliation which is most of my friends over here are not Anglicans and yet I have far more affinity with Mm. a non-Anglican evangelical than I do with an Anglican liberal.
0: Oh yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I noticed that when I was in Scotland, that denominations were a so distant secondary, what United churches across all kinds of denominations, charismatic, non-reform Wesleyan was, we believe in the gospel. We believe in the Bible. And, and I love the camaraderie. It's just a beautiful thing. And, and going back to your original point, I, I think there is a bit of a, um, the, the British, uh, a personality. <laughs> I remember my PhD program, you know, <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd give a paper or something and somebody would raise their hand and say, you know, I'm not quite convinced that, uh, da, 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 and that means they're totally full of crap. You know, <laughs> Whereas in America, they'll just say you're full of crap. You know, they'll yell yeah. it at you. Or, you know, I remember, uh, my, my supervisor, I think the, the one positive thing I heard about my dissertation was, you know, um, yeah, I think we can salvage, you know, some of this, you know, this chapter. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's just so subtle. I was like, it took me about a year to kind of understand like what these these yeah, phrases actually was, meant. Was, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Uh, so going back, you said,
1: say, what, what's that? As I said, that there are guides online to what what an English person <laughs> says and what they actually mean by that. <laughs> yeah. This is what you hear from it. So yeah, i not. not I don't agree with everything you've just said, means I don't agree with anything. <laughs> so good. The I think about that means I'm never going to think about that.
0: Yeah, that's so funny. I've, I I miss I The first year is hard because I, was, I feel like I stumbled over myself, but then it, it became like this game to kind of interpret things and what did he really mean, you know? And yeah, it's so funny. You said that uh, people under 25, when you're talking about LGBT questions, a lot of times there's a lot of similarities. W- what are some of the things that people under 25, uh, what are the top few things that they always like, kind of raise or question or push back on?
1: Well, that that has changed even in the last five years. So mm-hmm. when I first started speaking on this issue, the first question I would typically get is, what's wrong with a, a faithful monogamous gay partnership or some variant of that? Yeah. That was the kind of standard pushback. In, interestingly now, there seems to be more and more people saying, why does it have to be monogamous? Oh, yeah. That's so why, should that, why should that qualify it? You know why that's excluding other forms of relationship. Why should mm-hmm. why should it be faithful? So it's interesting. Once you mm-hmm. take out the gender complementarity element, the others are, are then up for grabs. And I, I see this with I think some of the the speakers in the Reformation Project now are are, are, are sort of saying why Why does it have to be two people?
0: Really? Are they? Yeah. I, I I I could assume that's. I mean, polyamory is a, a growing yeah. thing and people aren't aware of it. I mean, it's, they're not aware that it's, it's a much bigger thing than people realize. But for the Reformation Project, are they exploring that as well? Or? I, I, so I think some of the speakers are – I don't know if, but what the official line of the, right. the organization is,
1: but it's interesting that I think once you start down that trajectory, where do you apply the brakes? So if you don't apply them at the male-female right. you thing, why, why should you apply them? Why two people? Why does that have to be long-term? why Why can't it be an open polyamorous you know so but I think that the question I I get most frequently now that I think is the most serious question is what about the psychological harm you're doing to young gay teenagers
0: how do you respond to that I'm curious how you respond because I get that all the time too well it's um it is it I mean, it is an extremely
1: serious issue and no one can deny the prevalence of serious mental health issues amongst sure. among people who would be LGBT plus so I want to take it I want the, the question deserves gravity mm-hmm. um it's not a soundbite type question One of the things I I do want to discuss, I think there are various elements to how we respond. One is to own the fact that there are times when Christians undoubtedly have caused psychological harm, and we need to be honest about that and not pretend that's not been the case. Um, I think I I do want to raise the issue at some point in the response that we are not the ones making sexual fulfilment the be-all and end-all. And actually, uh, a... an entailment of saying to someone that, that this is who you are mm-hmm. is that if this area of life is not going well, then your life is not going well. You yeah. are not going well. And it strikes me that, it, that there are only a few short and tragic steps from someone hearing this is who you are to thinking a life without sexual fulfillment isn't worth living. Mm-hmm. So I think the fact that our, our secular culture has Raised the stakes of, of sexual fulfillment so very, very high, plays into this issue hugely. Mm. Because actually, part of our message isn't just we think this kind of sexual behavior is ethically right and this kind is ethically wrong. We don't think it's the center.
2: Right. Actually,
1: it doesn't matter to, to your deeper sense of who you are and fulfillment. That is not where you're meant to look for wholeness.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I, I do want to point some of the question back to our own culture and say, what do you expect when you say to people that this is the key to who they are? Mm-hmm. Because if, if, if they're feeling that that part of life is not going right, actually the implication is they're missing out on the best that life has to offer. They're missing out on the one thing that gives them a shot of being the the authentic, real, fulfilled, self-actualized person that they
0: are. So it's the centralization of sex or even marriage as essential to human flourishing yeah. that the church kind of adopts. Now they say, wait until you're married, but they, the the yeah. narrative is still kind of the yeah. same. Oh, that, that absolutely. Def- and yeah. I think that,
1: that's something that I hope parts of the evangelical church are waking up to. And I I think some are, is that you can't say to people, you can't say to someone, right, you've got to be sexually inactive if those are your sexual feelings. But meanwhile, we're going to structure the whole of our church life around marriage.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I read the best. Oh wait, you have a book coming out in 2019 on singleness, right? Is it, does it touch on some of this?
1: So it is because, I, again, I think this is, this is actually an apologetics issue. The church thinking unhealthily about singleness has apologetics implications.
0: Oh,
1: yeah. So yeah. I guess it's called Seven Myths About Singleness.
0: Yeah, I saw that.
1: Um, so I'm hoping that will help. Yeah. I mean, what I, what I would love is, is to see a culture change yeah. in the world on this issue. Mm-hmm. And there, there are parts where there are some wonderful... There are some wonderful <laughs> changes that have happened, um, but I just think the way we, we think about family, the way we think about community, intimacy, friendship, hospitality, all of these things affect the credibility of the gospel message.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Wow. So if we, if we demean singleness and treat marriage as if it's the, the goal of the Christian life,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that is going to severely hinder our witness.
0: Have you read the book? It just came out by Cutter Calloway, Breaking the Marriage Idol. No, but you're about the the fourth person who's mentioned in the last week. So I clearly need to get a hold of it. You, um, by far, on everything we talked about the last five minutes, by far, the the absolute best book. Um, He's a professor at Fuller. Uh, He's a professor of, like, culture and theology. And he he looks at narratives through Disney movies. Then he looks at, like, popular music with, uh, like, Taylor Swift and... And then he so he does this whole cultural analysis in chapter One, saying that the the very clear, pervasive message is you cannot be fulfilled as a human unless you have a flourishing sex life and then it, the next chapter is all about the church and how it basically adopts the entire narrative, except it just says wait and if, and if you 're pure until marriage the the reward the blessing is all this fulfillment. but he says if you step back and look that the narrative's the same is you cannot." Ooh flourish as a human unless you're having lots and lots of great sex, which most married people are going to say, um, guess what? <laughs> you know, right. I, I think the number one uh, addicts of porn are married men. So <laughs> obviously married Christian men, maybe even, I forget what it was, but it's like, yeah, that marriage is not going to de- deliver. It's not going to deliver all of these blessings that the narrative says it will. And I think you're dead on to say that that, that is, going back to your original question um, of the psychological harm that I think there is this unquestioned belief in sexual, sexual fulfillment as a necessity for human flourishing. That's which is why just the,
1: the life of Jesus irrespective of his teaching is such right. a, it's so countercultural, cultural both to our secular culture and to our church culture.
2: Mm-hmm. Cause this is a
1: man who wasn't married. He wasn't sexually active. He wasn't romantically involved despite Dan Brown novels. um, And yet was the most fully human person who ever lived.
0: Mm. Oh, but he was God. He had a... (laughs) That's that's (laughs) the pushback I get from that. (laughs) He has that little advantage over the rest of us. But
1: I just think that is... We've got to keep coming back to that. Because he is showing us... He is the the image. He is the model of humanity. Um, And we mustn't then flip that the other way and go that marriage is unspiritual and singleness is far more spiritual or anything like that but it just shows us that whatever else marriage is in terms of being a wonderful gift and a uh, an amazing picture of Christ in the church it's not meant to be something that is fundamental to human fulfillment and existence if Christ was fully human
0: without it right that's so good and and you're speaking as a single celibate person who has same sex attraction. So, um, so Sam, I mean, are you completely lonely and desperate and have a miserable life as a single person? How? Uh, well, I'm English. So I'm,
1: I'm miserable for other reasons.
0: <laughs> Do you get that a lot though? Like, oh, you um, just been sometimes. brainwashed by religious, you know? Uh, well, it's relig- very
1: interesting. So, interaction I've had with with people who are more progressive in their theology. It's a heads I win tails you lose dynamic. So if 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 a secular gay person has mental health issues, that's because of people like me. Right. If someone like me has mental health issues, that's because of my theology. So either way, it's my fault. Um, but I, I think, I mean, going back to your, your earlier question, I mean, the Lord has been very generous in the friendships He's given me, mm-hmm. and there are, there are families that I I feel incredibly close to. I've got a, a little pot back home of three or four house keys that are, are keys to houses that are not mine. Wow! Where I know I'm welcome anytime, I can just let myself in. Mm. So that has been a wonderful gift, and you know, the more I reflect on on friendship in the Scriptures, the more I see that it's a it's meant to be an incredibly deep form of intimacy. Mm-hmm. It's different structurally and architecturally to marriage, although marriage should should include it. But it, it I got very frustrated with one theologically liberal Anglican pastor who said, oh, you're, you're making people live a life without love. And I said, listen, if you have to be married in your church to receive love, then your church really stinks.
2: <laughs> oh, wow.
1: But that's that's the implication yeah, yeah. of what they're saying. Yeah. So, I can, and again, I want to turn that around and say, you talk about psychological harm, but what do you think a comment like that does to people in my church who are single involuntarily for a whole host of reasons?
2: hmm
1: That you keep telling them they live a life without love, that you they live a life of doomed singleness and... Mm-hmm. I, you know, I fear that some of them are actually going to believe you if you say that. Wow. So the harm thing cuts both ways. Um, yeah. But if our, if our, if we're doing church in the way the New Testament calls us to do church, then then no one should be able to say, "I don't have family here, and I don't have intimacy here."
2: Hmm.
1: But that means we, we've got to stop treating family as a kind of self-contained, self-sufficient you get your your spouse and yeah. 2.3 children and then pull up the drawbridge and that's it. Yeah. And um, the, the the New Testament vision is is far more radical. Have you seen um Rosaria Butterfield's new book on hospitality?
0: I've seen it, haven't read it. yet. I heard it's outstanding. Oh,
1: it's phenomenal. I mean, it, it's there there are ways in which she is an unusual example of it.
2: Mm.
1: But what she's an unusual example of is something that we should all be about. And it, I think it's a book that could it, uh, yeah, it is is going to have a revolutionary impact if people take really, wow. message to heart.
0: Well, that's I mean, I keep uh, this has been a growing part of, I guess, my work in ministry is is saying that the huge missing link in the whole sexuality conversation is an ecclesiology of spiritual kinship. Like we can't yes. call people to just say no to marriage or sex or whatever without giving them something to say yes to. And and. It's without a doubt, biblically, yes, as you just said, I mean, love and intimacy is can't be reduced to a marriage relationship. But if we just have a disconnected group of families and singles in a church, that's that's not creating the, the, the Mark 10, 28, 29 passage yeah. where if we give up everything to follow Jesus. You know, p, you know, Peter says, you know, we've given up everything to follow you. And Jesus is like, don't you think you got the short end of the stick? <laughs> You've gained brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and fields and all, you know, a bucket of house keys that aren't your own in your, you know, in your jar at home. Like, but the p- problem is, is that reward that Jesus holds out to those who give up everything to follow him is is not being enacted in, in many, in many churches. I mean, it's really, re- it's really unique that you have the situation that you do. That's. Nine out of 10 celibate gay people I know do not typically don't say that. The ones that do say, oh, yeah, I've got a wonderful family, spiritual family at at my church. I mean, they're they're the ones that are thriving. The ones that don't have that are like, yeah, this is really hard. It's an issue that, that transcends sexuality as well, because, you know, there are plenty of
1: people who are left out of that you know plenty of people who are long-term single for other reasons plenty of people who are married actually who are craving community outside of (laughs) the nuclear family and actually it's it doesn't help any of us when we we kind of make marriage something that is meant to be meeting all of your emotional and friendship needs
2: Hmm. Um, so good
1: so one of, the things I, one of the things I'm most burdened to do and try to prioritize is to, to speak to pastors and churches about, about these things because having a orthodox theology of marriage and sexual ethics is, is essential and necessary, but it's not sufficient mm. if you're not actually promoting the right kind of ecclesiology alongside it. Otherwise, you, you're calling people to live in a way that they're not designed to. Mm. Yeah, and, you know, I think of Jesus warning that the religious leaders that they were putting a burden on people's backs that they couldn't bear. Mm-hmm. And I fear some of our churches have been doing that around this issue. So I, I often use the Mark 10 passage and say to a church that actually if someone came to your church from an LGBT background, had to leave their prior patterns of intimacy behind, they should be able to say as a result of coming to your church, I now have more family in my life than I had before. And I have more intimacy in my life than I had before.
2: Mm.
1: And the question for, for any of our churches is, could we realistically imagine someone saying that? And if the answer is no, we're calling Jesus a liar. <laughs>
0: that's the that's hard thing for me that in the Mark 10 passages. He doesn't say, I want the church to be this. He says it is. Like, you left yeah. this behind, but you did gain this. In this life, and he makes a distinction. Yes, of course, we have infinite blessings on the other side, but in this life, you've got all these rewards. And I know a lot of people are like, "I'm not really experiencing this," and I don't. That's that's a really tough thing. I mean, when you when you preach this message to pastors, is the response really positive, or do some people say, "Oh, yeah, we have that," or are they like, "Man, I need to really change the culture"? What's the response?
1: a A lot of pastors will actually think goodness me we need to really think about this Mm. because as you say Jesus is is not offering it as a possibility he's promising it yeah so we do have mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters through Christ and my message to the wider church is are you being that do you realize that you are someone's spiritual father or brother or son or mother or sister mm-hmm. or daughter? And are you withholding that? Are you withholding from someone what Jesus has promised to give them through you?
0: Hmm. That's so good. Oh. Yeah. I'm glad that they're receptive. I, I know a lot of pastors are like, man, I don't, where do I start? You know, especially if it's a bigger church and, and I, you know, the typical response can be, well, we yeah, have, we have lots of small groups. I'm like, ah, the existence of small groups might be a good first step, but, um, that that's, it needs to go far beyond just creating another program or structure. It has to, a, a program might do this yeah. because it's about shared life
1: and you can't, a program can't do that. Right. It might be a, a one step along the way, but it's, right. And when they say, where do we start? I'll often say get Rosario's book to start with, because it's all about opening our home life and family life to others. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I think for me too, it's uh, the, the ecclesiology, especially with a lot of big churches in America, it's so Sunday morning service centered. Like that is even, even people that say, no, you know, it's part of what we do, not all what we do at the end of the day how much of your church budget time planning personnel goes into the service on Sunday and not, and, and, and uh, usually when I say this, people say, you know, oh, you're knocking the Sunday service. I'm not, I'm not knocking at all. I'm just saying it's an insufficient for creating authentic discipleship. It's, it's one can be one very helpful, necessary contribution to that process. But if that's not part it's, of a much be, organic whole, it's not sufficient.
1: It's got to be where Sunday, the Sunday gathering has to be where all the other things are launched. Mm. so it has to be the catalyst for the the, then the rest of the week
2: Mm -hmm.
1: fellowship life sharing walking together that that should be flowing out of what happens on a Sunday
2: Mm -hmm.
1: it should be inevitable outworking of it
0: yeah I noticed when I was in the UK community in church came a lot easier part of it's just the geography like when I lived in Aberdeen Aberdeen's a pretty big city but We hardly drove anywhere. We walked everywhere and everything was just so kind of close and and America's so spread out. Everything's commuter culture. Churches have people driving in from an hour away. And I just people just seem to have had more time in in the UK. It's easy to get together with people, whereas in America Especially California, it's it's just people are so busy.
1: I'm in Cedarville, Ohio right now, which is a university (laughs) stuck on the side of a village. Yeah. So almost everyone I know is within a five, ten minute walk. Yeah, which is would not be the case if I lived in a typical city, either in the states or in the UK. I have friends in London who, to go to church to visit anyone, always involves a thirty-minute ride on the tube. Yeah, yeah. And so again, that the dynamics will be slightly different. Um, but yeah, I think proximity can make a difference. Yeah. A forty-minute drive away, that's going to be hard to really do. Yeah shared life in a meaningful way
0: yeah sam we are out of time i can't thank you enough for being on the show i, I could I, man i could keep talking there's so many things i want to ask you about but uh maybe i'll have you back on sometime soon <laughs> i'd be happy to come back it's been a, a joy to see you any plans of life. coming to boise anytime soon well if probably I invited not i might you never know <laughs> all right we'll keep that I in mind in summer more than winter might be a better time though right Unless you uh, like to snow ski or snowboard. Um, Yeah. yeah, yeah. Generally, (laughs) I'm from California, so winters here are are pretty brutal. But when I'm on the mountain, it's it's not too bad. I'm not
1: generally fond of breaking my bones. So I might.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Sam, thanks so much for being on the show. God bless your ministry again. uh, If you guys just Google Sam Alberry. You can find out what he's what he's doing. But if you go to his Amazon page, just type in Sam Alberry, you'll get a whole number of books that he's written. And again, the one we've talked most about is the short, easy to read, very informative book, Is God Anti-Gay? Questions Christians Ask. It's a great, great introduction to sexuality questions. So thank you so much for your ministry, Sam, and many blessings on it. Thank you very much.